You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole from the committee staff, and you can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. We always invite listeners to join us at the committee's live events, and in this episode, we'll be sharing the audio from our most recent event, which was a lunch and panel discussion on the laws surrounding the possible use of U.S. military force in North Korea on April 24th. This discussion was led by Judge James Baker, the former chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, former legal advisor to the National Security Council, and also the chair of our very own committee. The speakers are Brian Egan, a partner at Steptoe & Johnson, who has come on our podcast to discuss sanctions, and Rich Gross, the general counsel of Janus Global Operations. And like any legal podcast, let me include the disclaimer that our speakers are here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. Please enjoy the panel and the full audio, including the audience Q&A session, which we weren't able to include on the podcast, can be found on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. ...is to bring to the public uh, issues of the day, issues of the day in national security policy, national security law, and in legal policy. And one of the issues that is uh, uh, always constant is questions about the use of force, uh, the president's authority under the Constitution, uh, the authority under international law, and of course, um, it is particularly relevant today in the context of North Korea. Um, We have all heard the uh, fire and fury uh, comments. Um, We know that there may or may not be a summit, which may or may not be successful, which may or may not, depending on uh, Mr. Cohen uh, lead to a higher likelihood of war, uh, referring to an op-ed in today's post. Um, so the, the standing committee thought it would be useful, since we were underwhelmed by the amount of public commentary on the legal questions presented by a possible use of force, um, that we thought we should bring together uh, a couple of experts uh, and have a conversation about it. And I, I also wanted to just bring also to your attention um, John Bolton's uh, op-ed. Uh, you, you were familiar with it, I'm sure. Is everybody here familiar with it? So we won't do a dramatic reading. But um, the last line, I might just remind you of what it said as predicate for our discussion, possible predicate, was... It is perfectly legitimate for the United States to respond to the current necessity posed by North Korea's nuclear weapons by striking first. Um, So that's just a backdrop. As you know, the operational chain of command, military operational chain of command, runs from the president as commander-in-chief to the secretary of defense, usually through the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and then to the combatant commander uh, involved. And so we thought uh, to get the lawyers who had served within the operational chain of command. Uh, Brian Egan um, has held many, uh, most of the positions in government for a lawyer, uh, but the one uh, we're targeting here in particular is his role as the legal advisor at the National Security Council. And Rich Gross, as you know, uh, Brigadier General Gross, 
uh, served both as a combatant commander's SJA, uh, JSOC SJA, and then uh, finished his career as counsel to the com uh, to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You saw the Marine Corps slip out of here. We're all counsel to the commandant, are we not? Yes. Um, <laughs> if we are lucky. Um, okay. Uh, so. With that backdrop, I'm going to start by asking uh, each of you in turn uh, to describe a little bit about your role at the NSC and at uh, Chairman's Legal, and you can go beyond that to Combatant Command, and talk about uh, the types of issues that would come up um, involving use of force mm -hmm. before we get to North Korea-specific issues. Okay. Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Jamie, uh, to the committee for inviting me to this. Uh, it's a uh, I agree it's a timely topic. It's one that I suspect prior administrations and legal advisors and people in General Gross's position have thought about before. Um, I, uh, I worked very closely with Rich as the NSC legal advisor from 2013 to 2016. Um, and one of the favorite things that I remember about Rich is that we had a group in the NSC that we called the Lawyers Group, uh, which consisted, we'll talk a little bit about today, of the general counsels from the key national security departments and agencies and the head of the OLC. And uh, we fancied ourselves pretty important within the interagency process. Uh, and Rich uh, really put the icing on the cake because he gave us all a poster of the superheroes. Uh, and he assigned each of us a role amongst the, the Justice League. I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, whenever I was having a bad day, I'd look at my Justice League poster and say, at least somebody, somebody in the U.S. government thinks that I should be, you know, Batman. <laughs> Is that who you were? No, Jay Johnson was Batman. Jay Johnson who was Batman. Who were you? I'm sorry. <laughs> who were you? It, it kind of varied over time, actually, depending yeah. on the role and the issue. Uh, right. But Jay Johnson was always Batman. That's true. Um, so what, one of the, what, the role that my office played um, on issues regarding the use of force uh, we, we, we would handle all sorts of national security legal issues at the NSC that had an interagency component uh, that had to go to the president for a decision. Um, and my role was to be the senior lawyer who was in charge of making sure that the president was getting fully informed legal advice on national security issues, including issues related to the use of force. Um, primarily, we would get involved in issues related to what we would call the use ad bellum, the, the initial decision to resort to the use of force. Uh, uh, primarily issues regarding the law of armed conflict uh, would be left to uh, others in the government to, uh, to resolve. Um, but we had a couple of, of notable issues come up in my time. First was the, uh, the famous incident in the fall of, uh, summer fall of 2013 um, when President Obama uh, had announced that he, uh, the summit said he had drawn a red line about serious use of chemical weapons. Syria actually used chemical weapons, and there was a discussion about whether and in what circumstances the U.S. should use force in response to that incident. Uh, as it turned out, the U.S. did not use force. The president sought congressional authorization for the use of force. He did not receive congressional authorization. Uh, but in the meantime, Syria uh, joined the Chemical Weapons Convention and uh, at least appeared to be heading in the direction of uh, of uh, losing its chemical weapons. We now know, of course, that that was not true. Um, other issues came up. Uh, the, the initial decision of the use of force uh, with respect to uh, what we called ISIL, the Islamic uh, State of uh, Iraq and the Levant, uh, was uh, in another decision that came to the president. Uh, we would meet as a lawyers group. Uh, we would talk through the, the U.S. legal issues, the international legal issues, and we would uh, 
present the president with our views on the legality uh, of those operations. Would you say that was a normative process? Was there a normative process? What do you mean by that, Jamie? Um, is that a process that would persist from administration to administration? In my time, we also had the lawyers group, mm -hmm. and I would have said there was a normative process that was not always exclusively used, mm -hmm. but there would be an expectation that there'd have to be a pretty good reason for it not to be used. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think this is the lawyers group and the legal process of consulting with the relevant, the key relevant agencies, I think has existed in one form or another since at least the 1980s, maybe before that. Um, and I think so I think there is a normative uh, component to this and there are some presidential directives that actually require that interagency process uh, in other areas uh, it is exists as a matter of, of custom uh, and uh, all of the agencies are familiar with this and uh, more or less expect it for certain questions but in theory and maybe this is a question for rich as much as for you um, in theory while the lawyers group review is is somewhat normative it's not required um, and for military use of force issues, it might the lawyering may be exclusively within the chain of command. Is that fair to say? I'd, I'd say particularly. That's a possibility. Uh, it's uh, particularly after the initial decision to use force, uh, where um, a commander is trying to figure out how to use force. Uh, those decisions are frequently, I, I'd say, typically made just within the chain of command. Do you want to uh, address your background then? Yeah, and, no, and absolutely. Yep. Now, I had the I had the privilege of, of being able to serve both at the combatant commander level as General Mattis's lawyer uh, when at CENTCOM, and then also at the uh, as the chairman's legal counsel on the Joint Staff for the for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So I got to see this process at at those two levels as well as multiple task force levels below that. Uh, you know, at more of the operational even tactical level. I have to say. If, Thank you to the committee uh, for, for having me, but also this is kind of intimidating. Not only are there you know, law professors who, who write on this, like Lori and others who are scholars in this area, but the law professor who taught me this stuff is here. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I ask him not to, not to reprimand me if I get something wrong. But, uh, so at the combatant command level and, and the task force level below that, you're typically reviewing you know, uh, proposals for military operations, you're reviewing targeting packets, you have people who are integrated into that process. So we're very careful to put uh, JAGs, judge advocates, into that process uh, at all the levels. And so ideally you have an intelligence officer, the J2, you have a J3, an operational officer, you've got other folks who are working targeting packets uh, targeting proposals, operational plans, et cetera, but integrated with that as a judge advocate who's looking at the use in bellow, the law of armed conflict issues to determine are, are targets lawful, uh, are these military objectives, is proportional use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I got involved with that at the CENTCOM level um, to a degree and, and as well as anything else that came up in the course of operations or just day-to-day -day business of a combatant command. And then at the at the chairman's level is where I first actually got a, a look into the use ad bellum. You know, can we use force in the first place? Is it lawful uh, to, to 
to participate in this particular military operation or this particular use of military force. And so that was the first time I'd really seen that up close and gotten a chance to influence it. So, you know, I felt it was a, a great privilege to work with a lawyer's group, not just to bolster their morale uh, and remind them they were superheroes, but, um, you know, I was the only uniformed member of the lawyer's group. Uh, I was the only non-political appointee of the lawyer's group, and I took that as a great responsibility uh, as part of that process. And I, you know, I will tell you, uh, folks have asked, it, was it political? And it, it absolutely was not. I never saw it to where the point where decisions were being made or legal opinions were being given as to whether or not it would have a political effect. That was, it was always about the law. It was, it was certainly discussions of policy. But never politics, and I was, I was, it was gratifying to me as someone who had come up through the military to see that. Uh, could you just remind the audience who the normative members of the lawyers group were in this context? Yeah, I can, and then if I forget somebody, uh, Brian or Chris or somebody, and, and do so in, in agency representation uh, rather than not, superhero rather than representation. Yeah, I won't, <laughs> yeah, I won't tell you who they, who, what their costumes were, what, what superhero I gave them. Um, so obviously, you had the, and it, and it tracks with the members of the National Security Council. Uh, both the ones by law and then the ones invited by the president. So you have, the, of course, the Department of Defense General Counsel. You have the Department of State Legal Advisor. You had the ODNI Legal Counsel, the CIA Legal Counsel. You had Chairman's Legal because my boss, the chairman, sat on in National Security Council meetings as well as principals meetings. Uh, we had, um, and then we would, we had um, sometimes, and of course the National Security Council Staff Legal Advisor, and then we would flex to add in member, and oh, and OLC, absolutely critical. You had uh, Office of Legal Counsel from the Department of Justice there. And then there were other times when we would flex, and, and, and Brian or Abriel Haynes before him would decide, you know, this particular issue involves OFAC license. So let's invite Treasury's, uh, someone from Treasury's General Counsel there. Or there's a law enforcement component to this. So, so you're talking about the lawyers group lawyers generally group, now, yes, rather. I'm, yeah. I'm talking... Just use of force issues. At oh, the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Otherwise, we're going to. I'm wondering why OFAC <laughs> is uh, in the middle of that. But uh, and then, the, but you would agree there could be circumstances. There, there, there were on my watch where there would be a uh, smaller group of lawyers. Absolutely. Like, okay. So Absolutely. there's nothing wrong with that. No. Uh, you could have the wrong lawyers. Uh, perhaps you could have no lawyers, and I'm not sure we would favor that. Yeah. But and there were certainly there were even issues where it was a particularly sensitive issue, and you would really neck it down to uh, just a few, and and it was principals only and principals lawyers only. So I wasn't allowed to send a substitute. I would be the only one read into a particular issue, and it would have to be me personally, and that that occurred from time to time. Um, question on form uh, for both of you: um, When the president decides to authorize the use of force, must that authorization come in a particular form? Or can he say, "Hey, do it"? Well, I, I, I don't and, and you know, it begs the question: Can he tweet it? But um, what I'm really asking is, uh, can you check a memo box? Uh, can you tell your national security advisor go forward? Yeah. Um, so I, I've got you know three examples. Actually, I thought about this question a little bit. Um, no, no, you're supposed to make it. Oh, act like that it was, everything's uh, spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. I spontaneously just came up with three examples. Um, <laughs> So I, I don't know that there's any legal requirement necessarily to have it in writing. Some things are required by law to, to be in writing. A covert action finding, for example, uh, is, is an example. 
But as far as a, a use of force, I don't know that it is. I suspect, though, that that just as a matter of policy and and uh, and practicality, it would need to be in writing, uh, or it would they would ask for it to be in writing. Let me let me push you on this then a little bit. The National Security Advisor calls the, calls the chairman up and says, "Proceed." Yeah. With X. Well, we and what, what yeah. would you say to the chairman? I'd Proceed with X, or I'd, would you say no, get it in writing, I'd, or would you I'd say absolutely record? advise him to get it in writing? Let me give you two examples that I just spontaneously came up with. Um, <laughs> so we we had a, we had an instance, for example, in an email where the national security advisor essentially said exactly that. You know, uh, go do X, uh, and and I think it, I believe it was Jay Johnson who who. Kind of advise the, the the secretary the secretary to go back and say, you know, did the president say do X, uh, just to confirm that we had an authorization from the president to do that action? And we pushed back and said we need to know that the president said to do that. And we got the email confirmation: yes, this was coming from the president, not from the national security advisor. In another instance, we got a memo, and I'll paraphrase it because it's classified, but it essentially said. The president has directed that you do X. If A, B, and C, then go do X. And so we pushed back again and said, okay, did the president add the caveats A, B, and C, or is that something the staff added? Because if the president said do X, we're going to do X. And we, and we got confirmation that, in fact, the president said do X and had put those conditions on it, as I recall. And so we executed. So we actually pushed back. The one example with a tweet um, that's not in the use of force arena, but the, the one time we've seen it, at least publicly, is you recall that the president tweeted about changing the transgender policy, and General Dunford put out guidance to the other Joint Chiefs saying, you know, there's, there won't be any modifications to the policy until the president directs the secretary and the secretary gives guidance. So there's an example where the tweet appeared to change policy, again, not use of force, so no emergency situation or a, you know exigent circumstances, but where the president tweeted something and the chairman at least told the military, we're going to hold until we get uh, proper guidance from the right. White House. Yeah, I think Rich's example illustrates the, the two components of, of this question that are both important, but you almost have to think of them separately. One is the instruction for the president himself uh, and how that, what, what he said, how that's conveyed to his national security advisor, typically to the White House staff. Um, and the question of should that, is, must that be in writing? I, I agree with Rich. Uh, it, it, I don't think there's a law that requires it. There are certainly presidential records requirements uh, that will kick in, would kick in at some point, but there's no requirement of a specific form of a memo uh, that would record such a decision. However, there are lots of reasons why it's a good idea to have a memo in front of the president that lays out ex exactly what it is he is agreeing to or authorizing or directing. Um, because the second part is then, how does the White House communicate the president's instruction to the military? Uh, the White House does not send over the internal memorandum that is given to the president where he decides what to do. The White House gives directions much like Rich said. It may be a phone call. Uh, it may be an email, but the, but that direction has to, to track what it is that the president said do or don't do. Um, and my experience is that the military is very good about making sure that what they're asked to do is actually what the president asked them to do. And if there's a question, uh, then that question should be raised and, and is frequently raised. Um, Rich, just to clarify, is, 
Is bloody nose a military term of art? <laughs> it's not. Not that I'm aware of. And, and you know, I, I think politicians and military leaders both are, are, you know, sometimes use sports metaphors, that gays boxing. I know there was a there was a famous comment by, at least reported to be by, I believe, the Times saying that uh, Secretary Kerry, for example, in the Syria context said, let's give them a brushback pitch. And so some, often, you know, this kind of guidance then has to be translated into what does that mean? And that's again goes back to that writing. What what does that mean? Is that a limited military strike with certain limited objectives, or is that you know? And and we need that guidance. The military needs that guidance to, to be able to go forward. But no, I I don't. I haven't heard bloody nose. All right, just, just wanted to clarify that. I don't remember it in infantry officer course either. I just no, I'm sure. wanted to make sure I didn't <laughs> sleep through that portion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changed a lot. No more horses. No muskets. All right, uh, Brian, um, can you frame some of the legal issues that uh, will arise on the use uh, resort to force uh, mm-hmm. at, at the national level, mm-hmm. and um, and then also articulate the relationship between domestic and international law from a U.S. perspective. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and please do so in the context of Korea. Okay. So the the basic question on whether whether there, the president has the authority, the United States has the authority to use force, and the president in particular has the authority to use force, I, we do break it into a domestic law question, an international law question, and I think you have to answer both questions. Uh, on the domestic law side, the the first question is. Uh, has Congress authorized the use of force? Uh, if Congress has, in fact, authorized use of force, then uh, it's a relatively straightforward exercise. What did Congress authorize, and is what the president is proposing to do within the scope of that authorization? Now, as um, as everybody in this room has seen, what sounds like a very straightforward question uh, can become very complicated in light of things like the 2001 authorization for use of military force uh, what exactly that means in this day and age. Does it authorize the use of force against uh, ISIS, which is a successor group to the 9-11 perpetrators, of course? Um, if there's no authorization, uh, then the question is, does the president have the constitutional authority to use force uh, absent congressional authorization? Um, and what does Congress say in the absence of authorization? So you look to the constitutional question, and then you look to the war powers Resolution, uh, which provides some guidance on uh, the circumstances in which Congress uh, has constrained the president's use of force uh, in the absence of authorization. Uh, and uh, there are published OLC opinions on, uh, the, on the first question, the constitutional question, uh, which uh, talk about the important national interests that must be served uh, by a resort to the constitutional use of force. There are actually a a pretty wide range of circumstances where OLC has found that it would be lawful under the president's constitutional authority uh, to use force. Uh, there's a second constitutional question, uh, which I'm raising because Chris Fonzone is in the room and he'll hit me if I don't, which is, uh, would the use of force be considered a declaration of war in the constitutional sense? Uh, would Because only Congress can de- declare war. Uh, and uh, there you'd think about what are what is the scope of what the president is seeking to do? Is it, is it in and of itself a war, uh, which is not defined, of course, in the Constitution or, or elsewhere, anywhere uh, re- very clearly, uh, but that's an important part of the analysis. Are we talking about something that uh, looks like uh, a war, uh, in which case uh, there's a separate constitutional question? 
And then under the War Powers Resolution, there are questions about if the president resorts to a use of force uh, that or engagement in hostilities, uh, which is not authorized by Congress. The War Powers Resolution says you have only a certain amount of time before uh, Congress must either authorize that use of force or that use of force must be terminated. So that question is considered as well uh, and often is considered in the course of a constitutional use of force. Then on the international law side, we can talk more about this in a moment, but there are, there's an international law uh, aspect to this question as well, uh, where uh, the president will be uh, told about uh, and asked to uh, make a decision on the international law aspects of the use of force. Uh, as uh, many of you know, there are three traditional uh, circumstances in which international law uh, uh, is seen uh, a country's uh, authorized to use force in another state under international law. Uh, one is uh, where there's a Security Council authorization to do so. Uh, uh, the second is, um, I, would, I would describe it as uh, where the other country has consented to your lawful use of force in their state. Uh, and the third is uh, resort to the use of force in self-defense. Uh, and there, there are different uh, flavors of self-defense that uh, we'll probably talk about today. But those are the three main areas and the questions that the president will be presented with as he's uh, considering whether to authorize use of force. Uh, the UK takes the view that uh, they need to have a international legal basis in order to use force as a matter of domestic authority, right? If they don't have a uh, compelling right. or credible international legal basis, uh, they, they, the prime minister does not have authorization. Uh, does the US share that view? I think the U.S. view is that the president uh, has the authority not to follow customary international law if he were to choose to do so. That would obviously be a, a huge, uh, significant decision by the president, um, but it's, we differ from the, U, the U.K. in that regard. Uh, I'd say the, the default uh, is, though, that uh, an operation will not go forward, not just the use of force, but other types of operations if they cannot be done consistent with international law. Do you, uh, do you agree, Rich? Do you agree well, with I mean, how, I, do you, how would you it, like to it, supplement, if at all? Well, at the level I was at, I mean, I would always, I would always advise the chairman: Is it lawful under international law, and is it lawful under domestic law? And then, and I didn't get into the nuances of whether or not the president had to follow international law. We just uh, took kind of the baseline assumption that you followed both laws, and then, and then the president, of course, has uh, you know does what he does with the advice of his legal counsel. But you know, we. My advice to the chairman is you have to have both. Um, we'll, we'll see what, whether there are any questions on that as we proceed further. Sure. Um, what about uh, a case where we're operating in a combined uh, forces context, a joint force or a combined force, using the vernacular that combined forces with foreign or allied forces, and not to uh, put too much play hide-and-seek here, what about uh, the Republic of Korea? Yeah. Uh, the, the issue on the table is Korea uh, and not the United States. Um, would we consult with our allies on the legal basis? Uh, can we argue collective self-defense if the person, the nation whose defense we're going to does not agree with the action, et cetera? Please comment. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly think our, our, we do consult with our allies pretty extensively and, and at the typically at the State Department level, so Brian may have some insights into that. Uh, but there are conversations jag-to-jag -jag often as well that, uh, about those issues. 
I, I think I think our allies' views or coalition partners' views they don't dictate, but they inform. I think at the end of the day, we have to decide whether or not it's it's lawful in our minds under international domestic law. But it, I mean, it can. I mean, that often the discussions are, are very important in a political and policy sense because if, if a critical partner in a military operation says, we don't think it's lawful, we're not going to participate because of this, then I think, you, you know, at, at certainly at the civilian political level, they have to step back and consider how that's going to affect that. You know, it's interesting, the, the collective self-defense comes up a lot. Uh, in cases like that, and, and, and yet we forget the, the huge number of, of American soldiers based on the Korean Peninsula that would be equally in danger, uh, as well as in, in many other countries where, you know, Korea threatens, for North Korea threatens, for example, Japan, you know, they're uh, flying missiles in that direction, and, and we have many, many U.S. Marines and, and other military stationed there as well. So I don't, I don't think we necessarily have to get to collective self-defense in a lot of those cases because of the threat to the U.S. forces in both those locations and others. Different question if we were talking about Syria, for example, where there weren't uh, U.S. forces there. Mm -hmm. you agree with that? I, I, I do. I mean, I think that the on the first part of the question, I think it's essential that the U.S. Uh, consult with its allies on the international law basis for using force. I think in many cases, uh, as you mentioned, Jamie, our allies cannot go forward unless there is a lawful international law basis for using force, and they won't go forward. Uh, I think other allies uh, will not go forward unless the U.S. can explain its view of the international law basis for using force. So it is definitely something that, even if it's not legally, you know, you can't read a constitutional provision that says this must happen, um, in reality, uh, our partners and allies will demand this from us. Uh, in many cases, before certainly before they'll partner with the United States on an operation. Uh, I think on the collective self-defense point, I, I agree with Rich. It, it does seem to me that uh, if you're talking about the Korean Peninsula, uh, there's a U.S. national self-defense interest uh, because of our military personnel and others in the area that if there was an actual uh, an armed attack or an imminent armed attack, uh, that uh, the first question I would imagine in the minds of policymakers would be, are those personnel in danger? Uh, and if so, do we have a, a national uh, self-defense basis for using force? I, I mean, the, the question of whether you can exercise collective self-defense against the will of the country for whom you're exercising collective self-defense, I don't know, that, that strikes me as a... Um, it doesn't quite pass the smell test, whatever uh, your legal uh, theory of the case might be. Um, and it's, uh, it's often that you're asked to exercise collective self-defense at the invitation or the, the request or the urging of another country. If, if the opposite is true, um, I, I might question uh, whether there's actually a rationale that at, at the bottom. Um, that, you know, I think that's subject to debate, and it certainly depends on the facts of the case, but that would certainly be unusual uh, in terms of how collective self-defense is typically thought about. Yeah, I think, I think there's actually an ICJ case involving Nicaragua, and I'm, yeah. I, I want one of the scholars involving to El jump Salvador in. Yeah, yeah, in yeah, Nicaragua. It talks about this idea that you need the consent of the country for which you're coming to their collective self-defense, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd leave that to somebody in the audience who knows that case better, but I know it's out there. We're, we're headed toward the audience participation segment of the <laughs> event uh, shortly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. 
For more from our panelists and the audience Q&A session, find the full audio from this event online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also find the committee on Twitter at ABA NatSec and on Facebook as the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And as much as we love to see you online, remember, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at our next breakfast, lunch, or conference. Now from all of us here, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.